Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Oh. Bites, pull the microphone of your front oh, of your sorry. mouth. Yes. <laughs> there you go. You might want to hear me closer. I do want to hear. I want to yeah. hear the deep dulcet, uh, dulcet yeah, okay. tones. You know what it is? It's like it's like it's like eighty hertz. Was that an eighty hertz? Is this an eighty hertz difference? Is this eighty yeah. hertz better? Well, because when you move 80 off eighty hertz, better. Just think. Let about me just that. tell you this: when you move off mic, I lose like ninety to one hundred fifty hertz of Robert Crowledge. You do when you when you this, li- when you get off. Is the geek talking to the dumb dumb? When you get off mic, Robert, you rob me. You take away my appreciation of your eighty hertz, and it hurts me. It hurts me. It literally hurts me. <laughs> H e r t z me. See, this and is the thing. H u r t s is me. Oh, okay? the sublime, whatever you call a word that sounds like another word that isn't the same word that sounds the same when you say it. It's a homily. Homilum. Homonym. 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 Yeah. It's a homonym. We're having yeah. a homonym conversation. Actually, I think it's a different word. I think it's homophone. Homophone. Oh. Anyhow, this is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolich. Robert, are you ready for this? What are you about to get me ready for? So, so this just to put a, a, a frame, uh, just off the top of my head, frame. Uh-huh. So, last year, we decided to do a thing where you know we we went to the inbox, the Radio Lab inbox. Uh, for years, people had been sending us questions that they wanted answers. Stupid questions, as we were calling them colloquially, but we, we say that lovingly. Sometimes they would say them. Yes, so, well, this is a question, I don't know, it may seem too simple to you, but why do, and then some sort of thing, why is the sky blue? Yeah, why is the sky blue kind of thing? So there were a lot of these kind of questions that accumulated in the inbox. Last year, we took a bunch of those questions, we emptied them out, and we tried to answer them. And it was very fun. Everyone got to do one, everyone picked a question and then ran after it. And there were some questions left over. There was also the questions that we ourselves had mm-hmm. that we had kind of like filed away. And so we decided we were going to do this again. Except this time, broaden the constraints so that it's not just questions that are sent to us, but we questions we ourselves had, questions that were given to us by friends of the show. Or that had just came into our heads and never gone away. Yes. Here's the deal. If you were wandering through your life, reading a book, talking to a friend, browsing a magazine, and some question came up that you thought, Hmm, I don't know. And it never left your head. Take that question, the one you still think about and have never answered, and answer it, baby. Exactly. That's the the idea. Yes, right. We have four questions in this episode, and then there'll be another episode with a few more questions in a couple of days. Starting us off. Do we have the levels all right? Yeah, you sound... uh, Is producer Simon Adler. Try now. Talk now. Okay, I'm looking at my checkbook while we're doing this. Uh, What's going on in the checkbook at the moment? Oh, I'm just... Checking. <laughs> and, uh, and a close relative of his. So how are the levels? Oh, you sound great. Very good. Yeah. 
So for my question, a little while back, uh, I gave my dad a call. I'm Tim Adler. I'm Simon's father. And, uh, well, and I, this is not your first time being on the show. Uh, that's correct. I've been on before with imponderable questions. And I wanted to bring him back on because since his last appearance... It's an honor to be back. ...a little over a year ago, you could kind of say he's become a new man. All thanks to a phone call. Okay, uh, it was June 25. Okay. And it was a gorgeous day, sunny day, good temperatures, and uh, I had decided at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon to take a walk. And as he was strolling along... Across the river from our house, I uh, felt my phone vibrate in my pocket for a text message. And I looked at it... And saw that he had a voicemail. And it said... Hi, this message is for Tim, or Timothy. Um, This is Carrie calling from UW Hospital in the transplant department. And we're calling because we have an organ offer to discuss with you. It said something to the effect of, we have a lung available. Um, There's a couple of numbers that you can call. Reserved for you. If you could please give us a call back and ask to have the transplant coordinator on call page. Something like that. And I'm thinking, wow, this, this is hard to believe. Thank you. Bye. If I can back up here. About 25 years back, my dad was diagnosed with sarcoidosis. It's a relatively rare disease with no cure that essentially triggers the immune system to attack the body. Typically, it it targets and wreaks havoc on the lungs. Now, usually sarcoidosis goes away on its own after a few years, and that's what we were hoping would happen with my dad. But uh, in his case, the disease became chronic. And so year after year, breathing became harder and harder. He had to stop running. Uh, He he was a marathon runner at the time, and suddenly just walking a mile became difficult. Uh, About 10 years back, he started using oxygen uh, to help him get around. And then five years ago, things finally got so bad that he was placed on a wait list for a lung transplant. And so that call was the transplant team calling him to say that after five years of waiting... They had awarded this lung to me if I was still on board. So it was almost like you're a sweepstakes winner. (laughs) Maybe. And did you feel like a sweepstakes winner, or were you like, oh? Well, I I had to actually tell myself that I always said that if one was made available, I would take it. And it's going to make a great story when it's all said and done. So on the walk back, I called and I said, we're in. And uh, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. And from there, this years-long glacial-paced process started moving very fast. It was pretty much honey pack your bag. My folks hopped in the car, drove the three and a half hours south uh, to the hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. We got down there about 5.30. And, you know, within 45 minutes, I was basically immobilized because I had things coming out of every orifice. (laughs) (laughs) And then just a couple hours after that, very early that next morning, the surgeons came in and said, it's time. And they just told me to relax. What's the next thing you remember? Well, uh, I woke up. 
and my arms were strapped to the gurney, and I had a breathing tube down my throat, and, you know, you just got hit by a bus, basically, with that operation. But uh, that was the beginning. Now, sitting in my dad's hospital room as he was coming to, I really realized for the first time then that this was, like, this wasn't over. The phrase is, you're just exchanging one major set of problems for another major set of problems. The biggest being the threat of rejection. In fact, about 50% of folks who uh, get a lung transplant only live about five years. And you can always be on the wrong side of that. I'm sure that that had sort of been explained to us, but I, I, I didn't really imagine what that meant until we saw him lying there. So, so there, were, there were all these sort of terrifying questions uh, surrounding all of us. And I, my, I, I think we wanted to find a way to talk about all those terrifying questions without having to actually discuss them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- the way we decided to talk about this was we inserted this intellectual or legal question. The question was, who had ownership of this lung throughout this entire process? Because, like, I don't know, if they're transporting a suitcase full of $100 bills, like, somebody has to be responsible for that suitcase every step of the way. Right. It, this organ is essentially valued as much as a suitcase full of $100 bills. So who, who the heck was responsible for it? Who owned it? Who was liable for it each step of the way here? And uh, when did I have complete ownership of the lung that was that was the ultimate question wait so you and your are you, is this you and your your mom and brother talking about this or is this like are you talking about this with your dad uh it, it started between barbara and i barbara your your my partner your partner yeah okay and uh it, from there the the circle of conversation grew as uh sort of as the week went on. And uh, yes, eventually my dad was roped into it and my dad was a lawyer, so he had some thoughts on all this. Oh, that's uh, funny. Yes. So wait, but isn't it kind of a simple matter? I mean, I would imagine that when the lung is in the donor... And by the way, do you know anything about the donor? We, we don't know. Uh, it, it's all kept quite uh, confidential. Essentially, there's a process through which my dad has sent a thank you note uh, sort of into a, a black box that is the nonprofit organ donation machinery, and that will be delivered to them, and then if they would like to reach back out to him, they can do so. But uh, up until this point, that hasn't happened. I see. Okay, so getting back to it. So I would think that when the lung is in the donor's body, it is in that person's possession, then it's taken out, and then at that sort of intermediate stage, it's in the hospital's possession as they transport it. And then when it goes into your dad's body, he then immediately assumes ownership. Wouldn't it be as simple as that? Uh, well, you'd think so, right? Okay. So nothing that really looks simple ever is very simple, at least when lawyers get involved. <laughs> this is Fred. Yeah, I'm uh, Fred Kate. I'm a professor of law at Indiana University, Mauer School of Law. He's the guy I ultimately called to try to tease out an answer here because he's written a lot on the laws surrounding organ transplants. And he said the first thing you've got to understand. Well, f- first of all, property is a really special thing in the law. Code of Laws by Hammurabi. And by that he means many of the oldest written laws we have as humans 
were about protecting property. Historically, protecting property was, you know, very much at the heart of it. Without witnesses or contracts, he has no legitimate claim. They set out to settle disputes over ownership. If an enemy take away from him anything that he had. Assess damages. The broker shall be free of obligation. And over time, the number of things the law protects has only grown. You know, intangible things like intellectual property, you know, I can own a copyright now. And so we have a a respect for property that's reflected in the law that is really quite distinctive. Okay. But having said all of that, we don't really allow property rights in most body parts. And moreover, the law doesn't let us call the human body property. Now, Obviously, in this country, there was a time when it did. But then you had the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. And since then... It could be sort of a squeamishness. It could be a reaction to the prohibition on slavery that we don't want to ever give the notion that one person can own another person's body. Since then, Fred says, U.S. law has gone very silent on questions of ownership and bodies. And so as a consequence, when someone donates you an organ... Legally, you have no ownership claim over that organ. Yep, yeah. We're just not willing to, to, to call it property. Okay. I think I get that. Where it gets sort of strange then, however, is that apparently that same prohibition applies to your own body. Yeah. You don't have property interests in, in your body. And so although you can donate them and you can leave them in your will, we don't really treat them like property. Wait, so you're born with a lung in your body. You don't own that thing that's been with you since birth? Correct. It is yours, but you don't own it. Well, and are we quibbling over the word property here or ownership? This is what lawyers do. We we, we don't call it quibbling. This is what we make our money doing is arguing over property. If it's not property, what what is it? What's the what's the term at that point? Um, I don't think we really have a term for that. Now, can you hear me? I can. When I relayed this to my dad... You don't own your own organs. Right. Yes, yes. He was as confused as I was. At the risk of a pun, they've certainly carved out an interesting uh, concept here. Yes. And it turns out the consequences of this legal carve-out are spectacularly strange. Let, let, let's say you drew a little bit of blood out of your arm one evening for I don't know why, and you, you put it in a vial in your refrigerator, and that night a burglar breaks into your, your home, your apartment, goes into the refrigerator, and steals that blood. That, that thief would not be charged with theft for, for stealing that blood. There might be criminal claims, like breaking and entering, but I just don't think there's going to be a property claim there. Because they didn't actually steal something that was your possession. Equally strange, this this has come up a couple times where... Uh, Richard Batista, his wife Donnell, went into renal failure... A husband, in this case a guy by the name of Richard Batista, donates his kidney to his wife. My priority was to save her life. The operation goes well, her life is saved. True love. True love. But then... Batista says his wife began having an affair about two years after the transplant. The marriage falls apart. About a bitter divorce along... They enter divorce proceedings. It's a stunning demand. And the husband... Batista wants his donated organ back. Wants the kidney back. Shut up. True story. 
And, of course, it was thrown out by the judge in part because it was ridiculous, but also because, and the judge never said this, but he could have that, like, sorry, bub, you never owned your, your kidney to begin with, let alone after you donated it to your wife. So I don't think you would ever find a situation where that would be treated as marital property. But um, ironically, and this is just going to make it even more complicated, um, blood, skin, and corneas tend to be an exception in the way we uh, think about this in the law. Meaning what? That you can sell your blood or or your skin. The law allows that? Don't ask why. That's just the way it is. Hmm. Even still, in these cases... You cannot call it property. I don't own it, but I could sell it? Exactly. What did they... When they took the blood, I would assume that they don't own it either. Well... The purchaser, the folks who who do buy it from you, the blood bank or the hospital that is that has collected it, they own it. Huh. And here's the kicker. So if you then broke into the blood bank to steal back your own blood, you could be charged with theft. Right. And, and we have cases on this. Okay, that's definitely strange. Very odd. All right. Well, um, what I think's interesting here is, uh, like, I think we we first started wondering this question as a as a tangible way to think about this far uh, more abstract, impossible to answer question, which was like, when would we feel like this lung was really yours? Like, when would we feel like we didn't have to be worrying all the time? Right. And I don't know. I guess I, I'm not. I, I'm not fully there yet. Oh, are you? Well, three months ago, I received a call from the uh, nurse that's been handling uh, all of our transplant affairs, and and she just almost, uh, as an aside, said to me, uh, "I think you're going to stick around a long time with this lung because it's going so well." And I I didn't know what she was talking about. At first, and then she went on to explain that, you know, there's a mortality rate after five years. Yeah, 50%. Something like that. And then she said to me, uh, but I don't think you have to worry about that. I think you're going to be one of our 30-year candidates. Well, I'd never never considered a 30-year plan in anything. I've always lived on about a five-year plan because when I was 45, given the decline of the pulmonary functions, I said to myself, I am going to be lucky. I'm going to be the luckiest man in the world if I could reach 60. And in order to get to 60, I had to get to 50 and then to 55. And then at age 60, when I got lifted or thereabouts, you know, then I was on a five-year plan where no lungs came along. So I've always lived in these five-year gaps and have been happy to reach those goals. So anyway, it was I was dumbfounded, and it was pretty uh, awe-inspiring to hear those terms. Right then and there, I said that this is it. This is what this is all about. It's, it's working, this lung. And uh, it's mine. So. I'm really happy for you. And for us, I, I'm happy for us. Well, thank you. I'm I'm pretty pleased myself. Thank you. Good, good.
producer Simon Adler. And his dad. And his dad. Um, listening to that, I said to Simon, I said, you know what? You know what this this story doesn't have? Shakespeare. Oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go. Well, because Merchant of Venice is about this very thing. Is it really? Yeah. Remember the guy lends money to someone, Shylock lends money to this Antonio. He says, uh, if you don't pay me back, I get a pound of flesh. I go, sure. Is whatever. that where that phrase comes from? Yeah. And then he doesn't pay back. So Shylock goes to court and says, I want a pound of flesh. A pound. A pound? A pound. I want it to on a way. Well, that will kill this guy. And he says, that's the deal he signed. I own a pound of flesh from this man. Give it to me. And the entire play then turns on a court case about this very question. No way. Yeah. What, what happens? He wins. He gets his pound of flesh? Well, it's a trick ending. Oh. He wins, and then the judge says, of course, you can have the pound of flesh, but the, the, the contract did not include any blood. So oh. no blood. See if you can get the pound of flesh. But if any blood of Antonio comes your way, you have um, violated the criminal laws of Venice. So uh, You can have a pound of bloodless flesh? There is no such thing. So he's caught. That's some twisted shit. I just said, I said, I don't know. It's like you've been like this is this is not this has been thought about by really smart people before this moment. That's interesting. Uh, well, okay, so let's go on to number the second uh, big little question. This one um, was told to you by our producer Becca Bressler. Hello. Hi. Did I tell you anything about what I want? Nothing. Okay. Great. I am talking to you about my question. Right. It comes from this guy Jason Pfeiffer. Test, 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 test. Okay, I'm recording now. Is that always how you test your mic? Yeah. <laughs> this is Jason. He hosts this podcast I really like called Pessimist Archive, uh, which is a little too hard to explain right now, but it's really great. You should go check it out. Um, anyways, I reached out to him. I just sent him an email and I said, you know, I'm a fan of your podcast. You seem like a really interesting guy. I'm a, I imagine you have some fairly interesting questions. So what keeps you up at night? What burning questions do you have that maybe I can help you answer? Yeah. All right. So you want to give it a shot? Your question. Yeah, my question. Okay, so here we go. So, okay, so here's my question. How far back... <laughs> now I've psyched myself out because it's such a complicated <laughs> question. I don't even know how to start. Uh, I do have a question. Okay, so here's my question. My question is... How far back in time could I go and say a word that, you know, or like an English word, a word that means whatever it means to me in English, um, that, no, I'm going to do it again. Hard. I'm do it again. This is what, Very hard. It's so hard. I know. I came up with, how did I even write this in an email so that it was communicated <laughs> to you? I don't know. Um, okay, so here's my, here's my question. If I could walk into Bill and Ted's time machine and go back as far as possible, step out and say a word in English, what word could I say that the person who's hearing me would understand exactly what it means because the same sound and meaning uh, have, have been retained across time? So, like, what is the oldest word that I can say in English that the furthest possible person from a totally different time and culture. Like they would, they, I'd say the word and they'd be like, yes, I understand. <laughs> I don't know how they would respond because I don't know their language, but they would, they would know what I'm saying, right? They would know what I'm saying. How, what is that word? Does that make sense? Yeah. 
I think that's it. I think it's great. Okay, great. Hmm. What an odd question. What is the oldest English word that hasn't changed? Yeah, and I asked Jason, do you have a guess? Oh, uh... He was like, maybe something basic? Like a tree? Like something just elemental. Grass? Dirt? Water? That's probably where it would go. Okay, so I just started calling around. Hello? Sarah? Can you hear me? Sarah? Hello? First person. Hi, okay, I can hear you Was Sarah Thomason. Professor of linguistics at the University of Michigan. And she told me... I can get you 6,000 years back. 4,000 B.C., okay, and so that's... The, uh, yes, which is when you have this language known as Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European is the ultimate ancestor of English and all its relatives. English and all its relatives are known as Indo-European languages. So Proto-Indo-European is like the great-great-great-grandparent of... Latin, Greek, German, Danish, Dutch. Most languages in India. It's all over the world, thanks to colonization. And who spoke it, by the way? The, like, what we call... Or, the Proto-Indo-Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about like tribal forest people from in yeah, the... They, so they would have been people in Eastern Europe near the Black Sea. Sort of fishermen, a little bit of hunting. Let's let's go with that. Let's say that. Okay. <laughs> and so... And how long ago was this again? 6,000 6, years. Yep. And I think my best guess for a word that would have been understood way back then is is. The word is. Huh. And why did she think that was the oldest one? So the way that she was thinking about it was certain um, consonants. Like T and K. Over 6,000 years. Changed a lot. But S with like S. Didn't change very much. It's just hung around. <laughs> but Sarah told me that the way you would have pronounced is, is. S-D? S-D. Well, that's not the same. It's not the same. No. I know. I know. It's not the same. So uh, I kept calling around. Um, yeah, sure. My name's Claire Bowen. Got a hold of another linguist. At Yale University, and I work on language change and language documentation and things like that. Okay, great. Well, and so told Claire my question, and she was like, okay, how about... The word for me. Me. Yep, it's simple, it's elemental, and it turns out that 6,000 years ago, me... In um, Proto-Indo-European was meh. Meh? No. <laughs> I know. So, next up was Robert. Hey, Robert, can you hear me? Robert, uh, linguist at the University of Toronto. Can you hear me? I, I yes, not. I can hear you now. Okay, I good. I can hear you now. <laughs> and Robert's word was sack. S-A-C-K, you know, something we hold things in. Which would have been pronounced... Sock. Ugh. Called up another guy. Do you mind just introducing yourself? Right. Uh, my name is uh, Yaroslav Gorbachev, or Slava Gorbachev. Linguist at the University of Chicago. I came up with uh, a few words uh, that really have not changed that much. So the English words three, six, eat, and apple. Yeah. And so what would those like proto-Indo-European pronunciations be? Yeah, they're basically the same. So for example, three is treyes, and six is swax, and apple is hobble, <laughs> and eat is ed. No. None of them. Yeah. Well, maybe the answer is there is no word that has survived, so they're just going to get as close as they can. Well, this is... Penumbral is the fancy word for that. Close. I can't answer your question exactly, but I can get under the under the cloud that covers this subject. Yeah, which is not super satisfying, right? I mean, no. like, why? what I no. want is, an, is a very precise, you know, literally the exact same word. And so I thought, like, well, maybe I can't go back 6,000 years, but I can go back, like, 600 years or something. Right. And so, um, how's it going? Going wonderfully. 
I got in touch with this guy, Andrew Rabin. Professor of English at the University of Louisville. He's an expert in the Anglo-Saxon world. Literature and law of the period in England, pretty much between 500 and 1066. Oh, very modern now. Okay, what's, what's the word? Yeah, well, so I asked Andrew. Yeah, well, I was thinking, my initial thought was, oh, the word must be an Old English word. Like, so much of our language obviously comes from Old English. The thousand most common words in modern English, roughly 80% or so, come to us directly from Old English. So I thought, gee, it has to be Old English. But then I started thinking, what if not? Yeah, what, what if it were something all the way back with Proto-Indo-European? No, that's, <laughs> we, no, we've already done that. Just hear me out, just hear me out. Because Andrew went about this a different way. So I he, The way that Andrew was thinking about this is he was looking for an English word that sounds the same or really similar in a bunch of other Indo-European languages. Because if he could find that word that was shared amongst these languages, that it would, it would mean that they were all holding on to something from Proto-Indo-European. And I remembered that one of the things that binds many Indo-European languages together is similar words for father. So Latin has pater, Old English has fader, Old Norse vafir, German vater. And and then he also realized that mother... Mutter, German, Mata is Polish. ...is the same way. Fairly consistent. So he went to his dictionary of Proto-Indo-European, and he looked up father and mother, and they're not quite the same. Mother is something like mother, and father is something like father. But what he did find is that in the dictionary, right under the words mother and father, were these two other words. Mama and papa. Mama and Papa. Mama and Papa. Mama and Papa. So yeah. It would almost, you know, almost certainly if we... Got into a time machine and went back to Eastern Europe. Back on the Black Sea in the fourth millennium BCE. And we said, Mama or Papa, they would have understood us. Hmm. That's just a little too pat. Oh God, are you raining on my Mama, break? Papa. Of course. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that myself? Of course it would be. Yeah, sure, sure. It's like baby's first words, obviously. But the thing that did surprise me that I thought was really cool in talking to Andrew is that m- the words mama and papa occur in virtually every language. So obviously all the languages that come from Proto-Indo-European. Papa in French. Mama in Norwegian. Papa in Latin. Mama in Italian. Greek papas or Papa's grandfather. But also... You'll see similar sound patterns in Chinese. Mama and Baba. Or in Korean. Ama and Appa. Like, it's not just Indo-European languages. These sounds show up in Swahili, in Eskimo, in Hebrew, Arabic. The technical term for this is they're linguistic universals. They just go right across the board. <laughs> so you just came up with an answer that's like that for everybody. Yeah, you find these sounds in a vast majority of languages. And, and why is that? Because you, Well, Andrew, Andrew says that no one's really quite sure. It may be that the M sound, because it only involves the lips and the vocal cords, same for Papa the P sound, uh, is just particularly easy for babies. Mm-hmm. It's been guessed that perhaps the lip movements involved in saying mama are similar to the lip movements involved in latching onto a woman's breast. Hmm. Um, ultimately, we don't really know why, or at least the babies know, but they're not telling. <laughs> but, you know, it's the very fact that the first words we learn to say as babies are also the oldest words. That's actually a really lovely thought. Oh. I called Jason to tell him what I learned. That 
Is that where they come from? Are we saying mama and papa because those are sounds babies can make? Yes, the easiest sounds they can make. Yeah, it, exactly. That's awesome. That's really awesome. You, you know, what's, what's so cool is that I was thinking at first about b- basics, trees and stuff, but this is, this, but actually that wasn't basic enough. The most basic thing is the first relationship that you can understand and the first sound that you can make about it. That's the most basic it gets. Becca Bresler and uh, Matt Kielty produced that story with her. You know what's funny is that most of the time I feel like Dada comes first for some reason. Does it? Yeah. It shouldn't. Well, I know. I mean, it's always a great, Mama. it's always like a, this classic moment of offense where the mom's like, what? Oh, you Why are you saying him <laughs> first? This is what happened to me. It was that she was like, oh, you got really? Mentioned. Really? You're going to go to him first? <laughs> Not to the person who birthed you and who is feeding you? <laughs> and I was like, I, I didn't. <laughs> and and what, what look do you put on and your and face? Then I was like, Sheepish pride? I was like, he doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> Anyhow, let's go to break. Shall we? Yes, let's shall. Let's do, let's shall. Let's Let's do that. Let's shall. Let's shall. Yeah. This is Carrie Clune from LaGrange, Illinois. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey, so what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, Imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently... A large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad 
with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, ready? Three, mm-hmm. two, and hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolovich. Radio Lab is what we're doing. Yes, and uh, we are in uh, the midst of Big Little Question uh, Part 3, Friends and Family Edition. And uh, um, you know how we said at the beginning that these the, we're going to give uh, – we're going we're gonna to nod to the questions we can't get out of our heads and that maybe are a little bit embarrassing. Right. I don't know if we said that last part at the beginning, but we're saying it now. And uh, – the, this next one uh, satisfies both of those <laughs> criteria. It comes from producer Annie McEwen. She delivered it to uh, producer Matt Kilty. Are you recording yourself right now? Yeah. Okay, great. So this is a McEwen to Kilty. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I guess maybe we could start by, like, how would you feel if I called you a Neanderthal? I would feel like a dummy. Dum-dum. Yeah. Feels like something you say to yeah. big dumb yeah. men okay. is how I feel. And then so if I say the word Neanderthal, what do you visualize? Like a bigger head, like a big block head and a really big barrel chest. And what is that what what is the person doing? Uh punching stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like what? Like punching what? Any, anything around. I think the image that comes to mind is something hairier, clumsy, hunched over, brutish. This is Evelyn Jagoda. I am a PhD student in Harvard's Human Evolutionary Biology Department. And like most people, you know, researching a topic, she's got a Google alert set up for the word Neanderthal. About half the time, it's an actual science story about Neanderthal. And the other half of the time, it's... Trump is a absolute Neanderthal on trade. People using the word Neanderthal to mean... Knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. Stupid. The Minister of Finance referred to her as, and I quote... A Neanderthal. Honestly, it makes it makes me angry. <laughs> Evelyn says this image of Neanderthals is just it's just not quite. Uh, I don't know. It needs an update. Yes. I remember you saying last time we spoke on the phone, um, kind of the the way that we think about Neanderthal. Neander, did you say thal or tall? I honestly can never decide what I say, okay. which is embarrassing because I talk about them all the time. What have I been saying? Have I been I saying think, Neanderthal? I think Thal, but I feel like a bit of a wiener when I say Neanderthal. Same. I feel like such a wiener. That's yeah. why I say Thal normally. Okay, let's I say Thal. Okay, great. Yeah. So, like, when did the wrong image get, like, stuck in our brains? Yeah, so it got stuck in our brains about a hundred years ago, back in France, with this guy named Marcelin Boulle. He was a paleo- paleoanthropologist. And one day he was in his lab in Paris, and uh, the, some he was brought this um, this uh, what at the time was the most complete Neanderthal skeleton ever found, um, which was very exciting. And so he takes a look at this skeleton, and what he sees is something small, something curled over, hunched, decrepit, mm. and he interprets that. And the sort of famous drawing based off his interpretation turns out to look like this hunched over ape man. That is where we get our idea. So that one skeleton then became what we now think of today, colloquially, as what an Neanderthal is. But it turned out that this particular skeleton actually had a great deal of arthritis. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Actually, this skeleton was diseased. Oh, but he just thought that's the way it was. Exactly. Yeah, it's like imagining an alien species coming to Earth and finding the, the skeleton they find that represents humanity is like an 85-year-old woman in like in a wheelchair or something. And they're like, oh, everybody looks like this. Yeah. 
And so tell me a little bit about like, what do we know about Neanderthals now? What are the things that are um, we are learning? How are they evolving in our minds? I would say that going from that brutish, woolly mammoth, primitive Neanderthal picture, I would say a lot of scientists today have more of a sense of Neanderthal as a different flavor of human. And this brings me to my question. Okay, so, so uh, I don't know, a few months back, Latif Nasser and I, we were making this story about these things called pizzly bears, these hybrid polar bear grizzly bears. I remember. Um, yes, you were there. And while we were hanging out in the studio, have offspring. Wait, wait, I thought that two different... I was trying to explain to you just how far apart evolutionarily these grizzly bears and polar bears are. They branch off evolutionarily like hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I threw out this analogy. Pretty much the same time that we broke off from the Neanderthals. Wiener. And so it'd be like us meeting a Neanderthal out in the, you know, the, the Crown Heights bar or something. And <laughs> going home with that person and creating... Creating an this is really specific. It sounds like you've had. Uh, <laughs> uh, Franklin Ave, uh, April 10th, call me. So I made that kind of dumb joke and it was very silly. But then, so that just sort of became a little bit, I don't know if serious is the right word, but the question kind of stuck around my mind like a little thorn. Like, wait, what would that be like? That's such a funny image, meeting an Anathal in a bar. Yeah, could you even relate to each other? Yeah. What would we, would we have anything in common at all? Are we at all similar? So is that your question? Like, if you met a Neanderthal at a bar, what would it be like? Yeah, like, could we communicate? What would it sound like? Huh. This is why I originally called Evelyn Jagoda. Okay. To help me imagine this. We can be so speculative here, so you're, like, <laughs> free to step out of your, like, scientist hat okay. and put on your artist hat or whatever you want to do. Um, okay, but promise you'll portray me as taking off my scientist hat. I will this. even say, I will even put that part in. I will, yeah, I will, I will, I will. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to tell me, you want to set the scene? Okay, so... Where are you? Okay, let's just say I'm at a jazz club. Cool. The lights are, like, dim. The music is kind of like that, like, steamy um, like brush on the cymbals type of jazz music. Yeah. Maybe it's raining outside or just finished raining and I'm you know, shaking my umbrella. Um, and I look around and I see, like, sort of a scattering of homo sapiens. <laughs> Some are, <laughs> some are playing pool. Do some we, are, wait, you know, are we are we living in a reality where it's like sometimes there's Homo sapiens and sometimes there's Neanderthals, or is this just this how is, you? This is a special night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking around at all the people, and uh, my eyes come to rest on this one guy. Looks strong, very robust. He's got red hair. Red hair? Yeah. So Evelyn says they, they could have had red hair, brown hair, and most of it was on their head. So they didn't really have much more body hair than us. The implication of that is that Neanderthals must have had fire. Right. They must have had some sort of clothing. And are you playing it cool or are you, are you just like gawking? What are you doing? How close are you? I'm playing it cool. I kind of like sidle up to him and, and, and slip into the, the stool next to him. You notice his head is kind of a weird shape. Uh, the back is protruding out got a pretty big nose. Smallish chin, brown eyes. Maybe he's working on he's grinding up a medicinal plant to, <laughs> to uh, you know, take the edge off. <laughs> it's, it's been a long day. 
Um, Evelyn says that there's now evidence that Neanderthals use plants to make medicine. Really? And sort of more incredibly, they also like looked after their sick and their elderly. Aw. Such good people. Yeah. I know. He's got to get home soon to care for his grandma. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and you're captivated. You're like, this is something different, but like, familiar. What is this? You don't realize until he gets up just how short he is. He's about five foot four. Completely bipedal. And he turns to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here we are. We're in my question. We're just looking at each other. And? And I just wonder, like, what's the next step? Can, can he talk? Could Neanderthals talk? <laughs> I mean, this is a... This is one of the great debates about whether Neanderthals had language. So we don't technically know if they could talk. Right. It's really hard to tell just by looking at their DNA and their skeletal remains. But there's, like, check out all this stuff. Evelyn says that they had a variety of tools. They're able to hunt. Mammoths and rabbits and small game. They had art. Yes, like geometric cave paintings. And furthermore, the other really human things that there's evidence of Neanderthals burying their dead. And, and you'd think, like, with all of those things, how could they have done it without communication? That just makes me think they had language. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think that, too, to be honest. Okay, so if they could talk, what would that sound like? What would this guy at the bar, what would his voice sound like? Oh, goodness, that's, um, that's very interesting. This is a human. This is a human throat. This is a Neanderthal. There's actually this BBC documentary made back in 2005 where they tried to answer this question. So I imagine that they wouldn't have subtle sounds. It would be loud, very loud, or very, very loud. There's this vocal coach, and she is sort of interpreting all the things that they then knew about Neanderthals. Bigger head, bigger nasal cavity. And a fantastic chest. And then giving direction to an actor. So, Elliot... So this voice that they create... Well, okay, let's just, like, bring it back into my bar scene. And imagine I asked this Neanderthal, can I have your number? Uh-huh. According to the BBC, his response would have sounded something like this. Now speak. One, two, three! <laughs> <laughs> now let's make a sound. Just let's make a huge R. <laughs> and again. <laughs> <laughs> That that was the voice they came up with based on the science? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's... But, you know, I thought, like, 14 years have passed. You know, probably the sciences have updated. What is what is the better answer to that question today? What is a more up-to-date version of this voice? Dr. Barney, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Oh, great. So I called up Dr. Anna Barney. I'm a professor at the Institute of Sound and Vibration Research in the University of Southampton. And she's one of the scientists that has tried to answer this question partly by focusing on this tiny little U-shaped bone. The Neanderthal hyoid bone, the bone that supports the tongue. It's right at the base of your tongue. Any, anybody who reads Murder Mysteries will know about it because it's the one that cracks when you're strangled. So it's Ew, the evidence really? that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this bone is a very, very important little bone for making sounds with your mouth. And Neanderthal skeletons have it too. But it hasn't really been clear, like, exactly how they used it. Like, did they use it in the same way we do? So Dr. Barney's team, using computer modeling, they sort of did a bunch of things to figure out where the hyoid bone probably sat in the neck of a Neanderthal. So that gave us a slightly different shape of vocal tract to a modern human. And, and, and so then they, they took that shape and they sort of uh, digitally pushed something like breath through it. Yes. Puffs of wind, yeah. What sounds were you going for? We were interested in what are called the quantal vowels, R, E, and O. 
So those are the ones, if, if you can produce those, then you've got the range of sounds that a modern human can make in terms of vowels. It's sort of like the primary colours of the, the basis of speech, is that right? That's right, yes. You could think of them as, as an analogous to the primary colours. So the idea is if they could say these three vowels... R, E, U. They would have been physically capable of some kind of language. That's right, yes. Okay, and what did you find? So for E and U, we found a very good match. Oh. And for A... It sounds a bit dull compared to the modern human ah. What does it sound like? A bit like? flatter. A so bit more like ah. Uh. Oh. Oh, so they're like, their as become ahs. Yeah. So are they still screaming and yelling like the thing in the BBC? Uh, well, when I asked Anna about that, she said, No. Based on what we know now, there's no real evidence to support that. I can't see why they wouldn't have the whole range of being able to whisper and being able to shout. <laughs> okay, good. Um, okay, so let's take a step. Um, or sorry, yeah. yeah oh, I just want to say yeah. one last thing that I didn't even get to the Again, part. Evelyn Jacoda. I feel like Neanderthal women are just like excluded from the that depiction is of Neanderthal. very Nian- true. Totally the word Neanderthal colloquially implies that right. in my Head. Definitely, and yeah. There were Neanderthal women. Wow. Okay. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should meet a Neanderthal woman across a bar. Ooh, <laughs> that's my kind of story. Okay. So let's return to our Neanderthal. Except for this time, instead of a man. <laughs> All right. It's a woman. Oh, fun character switch. That's right. Okay. And like the BBC, fourteen years ago. Here we go. I brought in a voice actor, Zandra Clark. So let, let's stand up, actually. Okay. Yeah. To. Be my Neanderthal. How tall are you? Five, two and three quarters. Perfect. So beforehand, I'd actually workshopped uh, a couple of, I don't know, bar appropriate phrases, I guess you could say, uh, with Anna Barney, the sound scientist. Um, Basically, like, what could we have this Neanderthal say? Um. (laughs) I was thinking, like, um, hello, you are beautiful, or did it hurt when you fell from heaven, that kind of thing. (laughs) But she had kind of a different idea, and she gave me this one that's kind of weird, but it really does highlight that special vowel. Because there's a lot of ass in it, yeah. Okay. Lots of ass. What what was her phrase? Patience. Okay. So I'm standing next to this woman at the bar. Just imagine the sister of the other guy. Uh Uh-huh. She's a little bit shorter. She's got, like, brown hair, the same piercing brown eyes. And I just say, hey... And she pauses for a moment. And and then she says, The cot sat on the mat. The cat sat on the mat, yes. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing she says back to you. There's, ba- there's vowels in it. You got your vowels. And that's like, that's almost like it's so opaque. You probably kind of lean in, you know? It's mysterious. So, come here often? Yes. I'm Annie. Annie. That's right. My name. That's my name. Annie. Can I have your number? Can I have yours? Yeah. It's one, two, three. (laughs) (laughs) They put your eyebrows like, "Mm." I'm picking you up. (laughs) No, it's cool. (laughs) Go for it. I'm not going to just have no facial expression. It's not a dramatic difference. Which I think is itself dramatic, right? Because... Um, I don't know. I just think it's so totally amazing how similar they are to us. And like the more and more we learn about them, the closer and closer they become to being our very close cousins. The caught sought on the mall. Not only a close cousin, they're actually a part of us. For a lot of humans, we have literally Neanderthal 
ancestors. For a lot of us, we have like 2% Neanderthal DNA in, in us. And when I spoke to another scientist. My name is Ella Alshamanahi. I'm a paleoanthropologist. Um, about, you know, I was just asking all of these scientists, what would it be like to meet a Neanderthal at a bar? She actually had this to say. When we think about if a Neanderthal was around today, some people would argue that Neanderthals are around today. Because if we each carry about 2% you know, Neanderthal DNA in us, are they really that extinct, especially when you consider that the 2% that I carry isn't the same 2% that you carry? Mm. So actually, amongst humans living today, we, we have, uh, I mean, the estimates vary right now, but some estimates go up as, as far as 70% of the Neanderthal genome within Homo sapiens living today. Wait, is she saying if you take all the 2% that are in various individual humans and add them up, you get to 70 Up to 70% of a Neanderthal walking among us. The ghost of a Neanderthal. Wow. That is cool. I know. It's super cool. So when you say, you know, what would happen if you met a Neanderthal in a bar today, you've kind of met bits of a Neanderthal in bars. (laughs) (laughs) That explains so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right, Annie. Okay. Annie. Annie. The cot. Sought. On the mot. Producer Annie McEwen. Oh boy, so a Neanderthal reading Dr. Seuss. It <laughs> 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 was just. <laughs> would strangle. <laughs> it would be a form of murder. I sentence you to reading the cat in the hat. <laughs> that would be like a Neanderthal prison. Yeah. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> oh my god. Anyhow. Anyway, okay. Shall we round things out? We have one more st- one more big little question. Yes, we should go to the final question. This final question. Oh, I really like this one. Yes, it comes from our. Uh, I mean, not that I didn't like the other ones, but this one just is so wonderfully weird. It's very crawlichy, this one. So, if there's time, which there won't be, I want to dedicate what's about to happen to people who were living in New York when I was growing up, named Mr. and Mrs. Purple. They were these people who just drove on a purple bicycle dressed in only purple and lavender tie dye clothing, had purple colored hair, purple kind of kind of makeup. And they were just very purple, and they were always here and there in New York. And they became a kind of legendary couple. This is pre-Prince? Way pre-Prince. And I'm sorry to say Mr. and Mrs. Purple are now in, in heaven. Maybe with Prince. But their heaven might very well be perfectly described by what you're about to hear. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so let me, let me set it up. So this, okay. is, this comes from producer Rachel Cusick. And Rachel, in addition to making radio with us, uh, formerly was a professional maker of food. She yes. uh, she worked in a she worked in a restaurant for two years. I th- I would call her a professional cook, although apparently that is maybe putting it too strongly, according to Rachel. But she's a food wizard, mm-hmm. and uh, regularly every couple of weeks will bring in these like food inventions that she makes in the wee hours of the night, like hallucinogenically colored rainbow shortbread cookie things <laughs> that are incredibly delicious, but also incredibly weird. That will set you up for what's about to happen for sure. Yes. So she ran into this question that uh, I guess you could say combines all of that. Mm-hmm. 
and throws in a bit of science as well. It was like a science meets food meets journalism like intersection that I like was like, yeah, this is my wheelhouse. Question really begins with this guy. How are you doing? Oh, hi. How's it going? Oh, it's excellent. Can I ask you to introduce yourself? So I'm Anders Sandberg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Oxford Martin School at University of Oxford. Um, so I guess to start, I was wondering if you could tell me how you first stumbled across this question. Like, set the scene for me. Where were you? What were you doing? Well, I was going back to my office in Oxford. He was on a bus coming back from a meeting. It's summer, it's warm, and uh, I'm tinkering with my laptop because the countryside is pretty boring. So, he's surfing around. Does they have, like, Wi-Fi on buses? I don't know. I, I was wondering that. I guess that's a thing now, right? I think it, it maybe is a thing, but maybe I think he's so dedicated that he brings his own form of Wi-Fi with him. Anyhow, so he's on this bus, and he starts answering questions from this website called Stack Exchange. What is that? It's, it's, I think of it like Yahoo Answers, but for like science nerds where people post questions, some are science related, and then anyone can come and answer them. Who are these people? Are these all smart like academics? I think, or? no, I think it's kind of a mix. There's like teenagers who want help with homework, and then there's just random Joe Schmoes who like are taking a break from Reddit and they're like, let me show you how I can disprove <laughs> Einstein right now. And then there's Anders on this bus, and okay. he's like scrolling maybe looking out the window every now and then. And then he, like, at a certain point on the ride, he sees this question. What if Earth turned into blueberries? It was posed just like that? Like, what if the Earth turned into blueberries? More or less. Uh, there was a note that, of course, it's unpacked blueberries uh, rather than already compressed blueberries. In other words, take this Earth we're living on, replace that dirt and water and rock with an Earth-sized ball pit of blueberries. What would that look like? What? Why would someone ask that question? I wanna, I wanna take a moment right now because I think <laughs> who would not ask that question? <laughs> no, like, I it's get. a fundamental. I think there's two kinds of people in this world. It's like people <laughs> who think it's an amazing question <laughs> and people who are like, get out of here. No, and there's also the kind of person who just needs to be convinced. <laughs> Why is this an amazing question? Because it's like hardcore science. It's on this website next to serious science questions. But it's also like the most fantastical form of that. It's like, let me work within this structured world, like the laws of physics, planetary science, and see where we can go. I love what-if questions. I'm a big fan of taking some assumptions, see where does it lead? So Anders says the moment he saw that question pop up. I just felt, oh yes, I can totally see how one can answer this. But as soon as Anders got started... The, the people over at Stack Exchange, the moderators, closed the question because apparently they thought it was too stupid. When the moderators on Stack Exchange took down the question, I got really angry. Why? Wait, tell me why you well, were so I felt angry. This is a good question because it allows us to exercise what we know about physics. He's not even a physicist. I'm a dilettante. I'm an amateur. He's just like, look, I'm not even in this world, but like these formulas are out there for everyone to use. This is like why we have laws of physics is so that we can imagine these new worlds. Yeah. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. That's actually why I wrote the paper. A very technical paper. Indeed. About this blueberry world, the physics of it, how it would behave, what it would look like, what it would feel like. Can you walk me through just so I have an image in my mind? I'm on this blueberry earth. What's the first thing that I would notice? Well, you would feel light. All right, okay. Because suddenly gravity got much smaller. 
Why exactly? Well, results show that the density of acerola pulp in the temperature range between 303 and 353 Kelvin. Andrew says if you calculate the density of uncompressed blueberries, they're about 700 kilos per cubic meter. Take that, plug it into another formula. You can immediately calculate how much uh, less mass would blueberry earth have than earth. And from that, GM divided by R squared. There is a simple formula to calculate the surface gravity, and it turns out that uh, you get about the same gravity as on the moon. Blueberry Earth would have 16% of the gravity that you would have on regular Earth. So we can bounce. Exactly. Uh, so you would be able to bounce around on the surface of blueberries. Uh, so <laughs> sounds so amazing. It does. Uh, there is an interesting problem, of course. Blueberries, well, they're squishable. So Andrew says what will happen is that as you're bouncing on the surface of blueberries, you will radiate pressure downwards into the center of the planet's core. Blueberries will reduce its mass to a point. And there, blueberries at the center of the planet will start to burst. So now the squishing starts. They burst and burst and burst until it's more liquid than it was blueberries at the center. And as that happens, the whole planet starts to compress. And normally when you pack these blueberries, there's like little corners of air tucked in between each one. But once that's being replaced with liquid that is being squeezed and squeezed, that air has to go somewhere and it gets pushed up, 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 like a volcano through the core up to the surface of blueberry earth. Ooh, what happens then? Then... And then the geysers start. The total gravitational energy of a constant density sphere. Remember, it's lunar gravity, so you're gonna get geysers going very far. Small letter pi. This is going to have big effects. This is the energy output of the sun over 20 minutes. Wait, tell me tell me how high up. I've never seen a geyser. This is not uh, a puny little geyser in Yellowstone that has just a kilometer of rock and the water boiling under it. Mm-hmm. This got thousands of kilometers of moving air and blueberry pulp. So it's going to be tremendously dramatic. These, these blueberry geysers, are they hot? They must be hot. Well... Yeah. Uh, One of the things you might have noticed if you're pumping up uh, your bike is that when you compress a gas, it gets warmer. So this implosion heats up things. You're going to get boiling blueberry jam uh, all over the place. I just want to get like a piece of toast. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh, And the geysers, I think some of them are likely to launch at least some of the blueberries into orbit. Wow. So these blueberry comets are streaking across the sky. They will turn into the weirdest uh, shooting stars you could possibly imagine. And meanwhile, geysers are exploding everywhere. And because all this jam is like shooting out from the center, it has to go somewhere. And when it drops back down to Earth, it just covers the Earth in warm blueberry jam. And so it's no longer like a surface of full blueberries. It's just like an exoplanet, like an ocean planet of blueberry jam. Oh, you mean like the whole thing is now an ocean? Yeah. No land. No land. Wow, that's pretty cool to imagine. And is it like an ocean like we would think of an ocean? Okay, so it's kind of similar, but it's gonna be like a little bit more epic. Like, there's going to be massive waves. Like, here on Earth, at some point, the waves get, like, squished down because gravity's like, nuh-uh. 
gravity pulls them down. Yes. But here is with less gravity, so they can be actually much taller. Can you go surfing on blueberry jam ocean waves? I think you can. Uh, the tricky thing, and, and this might be easy for us who are not used to surfing, is that they're going to be moving more slowly too. Ooh, that kind of sounds like my ideal to learn how to surf is just to like go slowly in a jam wave. Yeah. And then if you fall in, you just get to like lay in jam. <laughs> oh yeah, it's quite uh, delicious. Okay, so as you're surfing these jam waves, which by the way is now your amazing life, you notice a few things. First, you notice that the air is pretty thick about 10 times thicker than it is on regular Earth. Which means that you're going to have enormous clouds. The scale height of the atmosphere, H equals KBTMG, where M is the mean molecular mass. It's a little bit hazy. The sky is this like blue, purple, white, milky color, like swirls. I think you will probably find that it's going to be relatively dim. Another thing you'll notice is that the days will be a little bit shorter because the blueberry earth is compressed. So uh, you spin a bit faster. We end up with a planet with 0.8879 times angular momentum. Conservation gives two thousand. So you're there, you're surfing, and then you look up and you notice the moon. You forgot about the moon. The, the problem for the moon is it's bound to earth right now. But only because the earth is heavier. If the uh, earth turns into blueberries, if the mass goes down a lot. And as it does, the earth can no longer keep hold of it. It's got a lot of other things it has to worry about. So it will go off into an orbit around the sun. So you see the moon kind of just recede into the sky. Uh, but now you have an interesting problem. Blueberry Earth is going into an orbit around the sun, uh-huh. and the moon is also orbiting the sun, and they're roughly in the same orbit. Not quite, huh. but they're very close. So from time to time, you might just see the moon swirl by at nighttime. And then eventually, according to the math, there will come a time when they sync up, get closer, closer, closer. A kilogram of lunar material has potential energy GMBE. So over long periods of time, it's pretty likely that sooner or later... They will collide. The blueberry earth and the moon will collide? Oh yes, it's going to be a big splash. (laughs) Who's going to win? My big guess is that the moon ends up as the core under the now fried ocean. It's as if we just like absorbed the moon and put it into blueberry earth and this moon gets to live within blueberries forever. More or less, yes. Even imagine the moon splashing into it is probably going to send blueberry jam across the solar system, leading to all sorts of very hilariously colored craters on other planets. It's like the messiest food fight of the universe. Indeed. Oh, man. So the calculations I've been describing, you do them when you do planetary science. There is no life I know to compare with pure imagination. Our brains developed to handle the normal world around us. But in some sense, there was an overshoot. We can imagine things that are not here. We can think about stuff that ought to be here or could be here and or must not be here. And then we supplemented the imagination with science. So we got ways of reasoning about strange situations. So this is an expression of being human. Imagining other worlds, I think, is what really makes us human. Hmm. 
thank you so much for coming in on a Saturday to talk about blueberries. This is yeah, great. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's totally awesome. Producer Rachel Cusick. Also special thanks in this episode to Xandra Clark and Alexandra Glacier. Hmm. Well, look, I'm 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 on I'm on team blueberry now. It's like I'm yeah. not I'm it's not like I'm an antagonist anymore, but maybe I've just lost my joie de vivre, Robert. I don't think you so. Think? No, I don't, I don't think know. so. You did a, you did succumb. Some people get joie early, some people get joie middle, and some people get joie thrust upon them. Mm. Shakespeare. Mm. Yeah, of course. No, but maybe maybe the distance one has to travel, like you pick, you pick, you pick a person out, like at three thirty-three on any given Tuesday, and you say, "How far emotionally and spiritually do you have to travel to get to joy? How far is that 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 journey?" It, my journey used to be like, oh, "I'll just take one step to the left, I'm there." <laughs> now it's like I got to board a plane, I got to take off, I got to fly all the way across oh. the world, I got to land the plane in Tahiti, oh. and then I'm then I'm in joy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, you have you have you have slid further from the from the ideal than you wish to be. Yes, it's, it's troubling me. But that's but see that's the advantage of a story like this. This is a story that can gently tug you the way gravity does, mm. and then land you in a totally magical place. A jammy soup of glory. A jammy soup of glory, all purple. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I will say, just be just as a closing thought, mm. your 80 hertz is really good right now. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, you got a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a gravel happening. Well, that's because I have laryngitis or something. Under the gravel, I hear some really good 80 hertz. Well, thank you, Jad. You're welcome. All right, let's get out of here. I'm Jad Abumrad. <coughs> Whoa. Come back to me. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening. More questions coming at you in a few days. To play the message, press 2. Start of message. Hi. Hi, this is Evelyn Jagoda. This is Jason Pfeiffer. Hello, this is Timothy Adler from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do the credits. And I'm sitting here with my baby, Colin. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. John Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusack, David Jebel, Betha Hopti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Robert Krolich, Julia Longoria, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Kelly Prime, Sarah Kari, Ariane Weck, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oli Oli Lee. Oh no, I was going to get that right and I just, I'm going to do it again. With help from Shima Oliai, Audrey Quinn, and Neil Danesha. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Bye. I, I didn't do that very well, but hopefully it worked. Bye. End of message.